on the recommendations? Well, I, I've done a lot of interviews and, and it's been interesting. The mainstream media first asked me, you know, what's with these crazy 222 recommendations? And I, I kind of say, well, I'm surprised there weren't more, to be perfectly honest. So it's uh, it's covered a lot of, lot of ground, you know, working in disability. Everyone will know that. You know, there's there's so many different types of settings and so many different issues that it's a, it's a mammoth piece of work that's been done over the last four years. And I think that the outcomes and the recommendations will be interesting to see in terms of how we practically get into them and how the government prioritises them. Because of course, we don't have any funding in the current budget to actually um, do any of those recommendations for some strange reason. The government didn't think to allocate funding for any of that. So I'm hoping it doesn't wait to the next financial year. But we, we kind of, I guess for me, I, I wanted, I would like to see the safeguards as the first starting point and priority for a lot of those recommendations that have come out. Because uh, I think a lot of the, the scary stories that the Australian public probably will think are shocking, but are probably, you know, everyday stories that we hear all the time in the disability sector ourselves, um, I think a lot of those stem from the fact that we don't have the safeguards that we used to have, um, that we're still struggling to try and safeguard people and we, we don't have the safeguards that we really need to, to go and make sure things are, are okay and people are okay. So I think for me, it's a, it's a big read. I, I have all those volumes sitting on my desk here and I think for me, it's about I guess the next step, which is I'm hoping people with a disability being put in charge of getting these recommendations right and quickly and, and not not bureaucrats that will, will, will sit in a room and probably have the first six meetings to talk about what logo I want to call their project team. Oh, look, let's start with one of these recommendations. Like there are many recommendations and ways to address segregation in schools, for example, or take a major and drastic revolution and restructure of our schools, teaching resources, physical settings, support the staff, radical funding model reviews and cultural improvements when it comes down to the complete integration of students with a disability. And that's been something which I've noticed has come across in the media. It's all over the internet. What actually happens to special schools? Do they stay do they go or is it more about integration i think there's going to be a, a, a bit of a mix so i guess just like with ndis everyone uh, their support needs are individuals so you know for some young people being in a classroom with 30 children you know is not manageable and they, they find that really difficult you know so they may find that they can't cope with that all day every day they may need a a quieter setting with a with a, a more higher level of support from a teaching staff. So within a special school, you may only have three or four students in a classroom with a teacher and a teacher aide and a support person because those young people need one-on-one support almost the entire day. When I worked in special ed, but they're the sorts of settings I would be and it was very lonely because I never had lunch breaks because my students needed me to help them eat lunch uh, because they couldn't do that and they needed all of that personal care done for them. So to then put them into a classroom with 30 students that if they didn't have that support, it'd be kind of like saying, well, we won't, we won't segregate you into a school, but it's separate, but we'll segregate you by putting you in a group, but you'll have your own staff and you won't talk to the other kids and you won't really be able to do what the other kids are doing, but you know, you'll, you'll technically be in the classroom. So I think it's about making sure that we, we recognize that some young people thrive in different settings, but I think the recommendations have talked about 
Yeah, just trying to get rid of special schools as the as the as the option that's kind of only there, it's rather than going well, you're either in a special school or a mainstream school. I think we can. I think the recommendations about trying to get rid of that model and sort of saying, well, some people may need specialist settings, but you know, by having those two models, the the the, the biggest problem is the ones that don't fit in either of those models. So. When I used to teach and I was working in advisory um, services for teachers, you know, I would walk into a classroom where they had, you know, a, a bunch of kids with disabilities and different support needs and behavior and stuff. And I'd talk to teachers and they, they'd always be very aggressive to start with. And they'd say, I can't possibly have individual programs for all my kids and I haven't got the time and the resources. And, and a lot of the time for the young people that needed simple, you know, support, I would say, well, none of the kids enjoy your teaching. No one likes to sit there for two hours doing worksheets. None of the kids, the only difference is the little kid with ADHD or ASD doesn't have the tolerance levels to put up with that for two hours. The other kids maybe, but they can't. So all of the visuals that we put in, the structure, the routine, the different types of teaching, the different activity-based work that you can do, you know, allowing those activities to be done I guess either the the bare basics or for the young people that are really gifted to go, you know, above and beyond, you know, all the kids in the class are going to enjoy that. So we don't need to do individual programs for every single young person that is, you know, crazy different for every single child in that classroom. And teaching staff would, would often realise that, you know, a lot of the things that we ask for the education system to do for young people with disabilities is actually stuff that almost every child is going to benefit from because I remember as a, a child I was the kid that was sent out every single day of every single class and it was only because my tolerance levels weren't as good as the, the other kids that didn't have those diagnoses so I think we need to start I guess by changing our attitude I think in the education system we need to bring disability into the classroom but also we need to do a big culture shift in Australia because I've already been on talkback radio where people have said, oh, what, we can't allow those children in the classroom. What's it going to, it's going to take away from my child's education. And, I'm, and there's a lack of, I guess, understanding that if we were to take resources from special schools and integrate young people who shouldn't be excluded into back into a mainstream setting, they're going to come with that funding and those resources. We're not going to expect that to be done by a teacher that, you know, now just has to do a whole bunch of extra work. But at the same time, I've also had some very bizarre comments. For example, when I started teaching 25 years ago, I had a whole bunch of kids that had hearing impairments and cochlear impairments, and we used to do maths lessons and sign. They they mostly attended the mainstream classes that all their other friends attended. There was no need for them to be in a special school. And I was in one re interview recently where the radio announcer was saying, well, you know, those kids should be in a special school so they can be taught by by teachers that are having hearing impairments because they'll enjoy seeing people like them. And I was like, they, these kids are hanging out with their friends. They go surfing before school. They go and work at Macca's after school, just like their friends. They go to the normal classes that all their friends go to. There's no need to segregate them for no particular reason. So I think we have to start with educating the, the rest of Australia, which I think what is that that's what the Royal Commission is going to help do, I think. Ripper, I'm going to actually go in and take it. I've got a number of friends who are part of the deaf and the hard of hearing community. Auslan is to use their preferred language. How does this actually come into play? Well, it was interesting. When I was teaching, we had the special education unit within the mainstream setting, and the, the kids who had the hearing impairment would sometimes come in and do a little bit of work there, but not a lot. And then 
a lot of the role of that unit was to go out and work with the teachers to make sure that they were able to do things that worked for those young people. So uh, we all learned Auslan. So all of us used to just talk to all the teaching staff just started teaching, you know, using Auslan and we talked to each other all the time. Even the mainstream school teachers came to the special education unit and were doing workshops learning how to use Auslan. Um, and we used to use it all the time because it's one of those things, you, if you don't use it, you lose it. And we found the whole school would do it and the kids would like to, would be learning Auslan. The other, the kids that were hanging out with these kids would often learn Auslan. But a lot of the young people, some of them had cochlear implants so they could hear. So they didn't rely too heavily on Auslan as long as the material was, was well presented, but they didn't have a lot of different teaching styles in the classroom. And then there was other young people that didn't have the cochlear implant who their teaching um, staff needed just those reminders from the education unit to say, well, you know, stop talking with your back to the wall, to the class. You know, they need to be able to see your mouth so they can see see what you're saying. You know, all the students in the class will appreciate it if you provide them with some visuals and some actual handouts and some text and some instructions that they can read that aren't just verbal instructions. So don't just do it for this one child that has a hearing impairment. Now, you, you, all the kids in the class are going to appreciate it if you teach in this way because it's inclusive of all of the students and all of the learning styles that they all have, as well as the kids with the, the hearing impairment. And, and when I taught, those kids, you know, I'd say to them, and, I, and this is my approach for all things, I'd always say, what is it that other teachers do that you don't like that you want to make sure that I do and, and be aware of? And I remember feeling really sad that the kids would say, well, in, instead of throwing chalk at me to get my attention like the other teachers do, could you just tap your foot because then I'll, I'll feel that. And I'm like, do the teachers throw chalk at you? And they're like, yeah. And I'm like, wow. And I'm like, in this day and age, that was their teaching staff's approach. And, you know, so I would go and talk to teachers and say, you do it again and I'll be throwing things at you. You know, so, you know, and they, they, and they, they, they just, the teaching staff in the school of a general, this is when I was teaching at, say, in, my, in Miami High School down on the Gold Coast, you know, the whole school got behind it and, and it was really interesting to see. And a lot of the teaching staff were educated. You know, I, I, I had teaching staff that didn't understand what a cochlear implant was. And they'd come into my classroom when I was doing specific group work with the kids with a hearing impairment. And they'd put their hand over their mouth and when they were talking because they thought that the kids could only lip read. And they didn't understand that half the kids in the room had a cochlear implant. They could still hear. And they'd say some really inappropriate things. And the kids in the class would pretend not to hear. And then after the teacher left, We'd all have a bit of a laugh and I'd go, they think you can't hear anything. You know, and we'd have to educate this, the, the teaching staff to realize just how embarrassing it is and some of the things that they've said that are really hurtful to those young people because they don't understand. So having that in a mainstream setting really, really helped the kids, the, the mainstream kids, as well as the, the teaching staff as a whole, because I think that then branches out to the rest of the community. Well, is it River? We're going to play some community announcements. And then we're going to continue talking with Mr. River Knight, who is a national disability advocate about the Royal Commission into Disability and the NDIS. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. We know you love listening to 3CR. But we also know that many of you haven't downloaded the Community Radio Plus app yet. The app lets you tune in anywhere and share the station with your friends. So, show the love. 
and share the love and search Community Radio Plus wherever you get your apps. I think Welcome to Country is a very dangerous concept and initiative. I really don't know where Welcome to Country even merged from. I know that I don't think it was a, obviously an Aboriginal initiative. I think obviously governments had uh, introduced that as they were pacifying our flag of resistance. You know, the idealism that lies behind that obviously is so that white people can feel a sense that they're more guests and they've got a right of ownership and to be here. If we're going to continuously welcome them to country, what that does, it rectitudes the fact of the moral racism issues in which they perpetrate against our people because how can we be talking about all these other issues and then compromise a hypocrisy in our own selves to welcome these murderers and these uh, slave traders this barbaric sense of what they've done to occupy Australia on one hand and, and welcome them on the other You're listening to Radical Radio 3CR Welcome back to The Boldness on 3CR 855 AM. We're talking with Mr. River Knight, a national disability advocate, about the Royal Commission into Disability Recommendations and the National Disability Insurance Scheme. Now, River, with the one-on-one, the teaching, having the support systems in place. A lot of this really depends on the National Disability Insurance Scheme. What actually happens with the National Disability Insurance Scheme, there's around 4.1 million people that identify with a disability. About 500,000 of them do have access to a national disability insurance scheme, which is supposed to provide support, that's about one in eight. Can the national disability insurance scheme be streamlined and made easier for people to make it easy to access? Well, I think what's happened that I've noticed um, over the last 10 years of NDIS, especially over the last couple of years, is um, they've actually made the process really difficult, and they've probably it's got probably costing a, a lot more. So when we look at the economic impact of disability, I think the the cost and the spending in NDIS a lot of it is wasted because of the way they do things. So, uh, for example, we you know here here in Queensland, when I was working for some some people that I know here, you know we, we can no longer just have a local NDIS planner. We can't call the NDIS office down the road because you can't, you're not supposed to have their number. Your, your planner isn't there because they could be three states away. They don't have a really good system for recording and keeping all of those assessments and things that you send them each year, you know, in a good space so that you don't have to start from scratch every time. And then the decisions aren't always understood. So when they do make a decision, they don't provide a good reason. Um, you've got a lot of inconsistency. And what we've found, especially over the last few years, is they've made that process 
really difficult. So, you know, I've had instances where, you know, a participant's funding might be $400,000 a year and the planner simply rolls the funding over to the next year and approves a brand new plan without any conversation, contact with anybody, including the participant, just simply does it. And the only way that they know that it's even happened is that the service provider tried to claim the funds to pay for the services and they couldn't because the planner rolled over the plan but forgot to put the funding in the plan. So then the service provider has to try and call. takes about three to four weeks sometimes to get onto somebody. They say, oops, and they eventually fix it. A lot of drama. And then this, we sort of say, well, you know, all of these services are supposed to be linked to my goals for the, for the year. And I, I, who, at what who made the goals up in my plan because I wasn't even involved in my own because you just simply rolled it over. Automation is something that gets very scary in the disability sector because the whole point of NDIS is individualized funding for individualized situations. So uh, what we've seen is a lot of automation and a lot of, um, you know, tick the box approaches, which makes it really difficult to individualize. And it makes it really scary because it feels like we're heading towards another robo debt when we start doing that kind of thing. And and I, I'm sure most people would agree. If I tried to apply for a grant for four hundred thousand dollars, there's a lot of paperwork and due diligence and checks and balances and a lot of hoops I have to go through. But you know, when you can just simply tick a box and play around with four hundred thousand without even talking to the person that the funding's for, it just means that most of the time we don't get it right. And we have to spend all this time fixing something that would have been easier if I had a local NDIS planner. I go meet them, have a chat. They go, well, I can see that you haven't miraculously been cured of your lifelong disability that you've had the last, you know, 40 years. You know, so I don't need you to prove that you've still got it. And, you know, what do we want to work on this year? Let's get it right. Let's get it done. Easy. And unfortunately, we've, we've moved away from that a lot. In the last few years, we've used, I think COVID's been used as a bit of an excuse for that, you know, getting away from the face to face. But at the same time, we don't have to have face to face all the time. But having a planner that's three states away that I don't even get to talk to is a bit scary. I happen to agree with you that as someone that's been around advocacy and activism in the disability community for about 25 years, I get a lot of people talk to me about different things and that. National Disability Insurance Scheme, as it stands, is not the one which people fought for and advocated for. Originally, it has moved. I've heard some horror stories about complete plans being spent by case managers before it's even started to address some of the goals and the reasons that people needed the National Disability Insurance Scheme. Let's take autism or Asperger's syndrome, and I'm using those ones that when the assessments were done, having a person coming and try to actually do this instead of the person's usual practitioner or registered health professional who is more familiar with this, that it can range dramatically day to day with all the changes. Yeah, and I think with um, when it comes to the reality of, of life, you know, we, we've got to bring, we've got to make sure that human is, is part of what we're doing, you know, so... When, when people don't fit into a box, so what they the supports they need one month might be different next month. You know, they may have a great time and be doing really well, and then other times they might need extra support. So 
Um, the current system doesn't really respond quickly to anything, and then the decisions are often really confusing. And when they stuff it up, that takes a long time to fix things. So we have this weird situation where service providers, people that know them, their families, the professionals, the person themselves are telling NDIS what their experience is and what they need. And then we, we're often getting bureaucrats that don't have any disability experience whatsoever who say, I don't know anything about this, but my piece of paper tells me that you're wrong and you don't need that because we've decided that someone with your diagnosis, they need this. And that's what my piece of paper says. And that's what, that's what gets a bit scary. So when I've got a little kid that's living in you know, rural Australia that has no access to gyms and services because they're hundreds of kilometres away from things, who asks for a bit of funding for some equipment for early intervention, you know, that's pretty reasonable and fair. But when, you know, when you've got another kid that maybe they've got six gyms around them, they've got physios down the road, you know, they can access that stuff. NDIS might sort of say, well, you know, you probably don't need funding for, for that stuff because it's, it's there and available. And they might say, well, yeah, we agree, you know, and that makes sense. But when we start doing blanket decisions and we don't respond to the individual nature of, of disability and, and we also have taken away that quick response to a crisis, what happens is service providers have to somehow buffer it. And I know service providers where, you know, a group, people might be living in a group home, you know, one person seriously abuses and assaults the other person. So they can't live together. So all of a sudden, one person needs to have their own setting and put in a safe space so that they're not being beaten by another co-tenant. It can take weeks for NDIS just to sort of go, well, yeah, obviously, we need to change this setting while we sort things out. You know, oh, but they're only approved for one to three support. And we say, well, it's going to take a while to find another place for them to live with two other people. But in the meantime, but they're only approved for one to three. So the service providers have to pay for two-thirds of a staff member for a few weeks or maybe a couple of months. The service provider will have to wear that. Or we'll just, you know, deplete the person's funding completely. Thank you very much for your time. Just a quick one for you. What is the best way for people to get in contact with Australian communities? Well, um, for what we do, Developing Australian Communities has a really cool Facebook page where you can see a lot of stuff. So if you just simply go in and type in Developing Australian Communities, you'll find that on Facebook, Instagram. We've got a really cool website there too where we link a lot of the events and the stuff that's going on. Um, and you can also then uh, find some of the information about the virtual space that we're, we're, we're kicking off with around Australia as well. So the best thing is to do is just to Google Developing Australian Communities and you'll find us. Thank you very much for your time. My name is Rafael Caleb from The Boldness on 3CR 8.55am. I've been talking with Mr. Reverend Knight, a National Disability Advocate, thank you for your time. Thank you. Absolute honour to be here. Thank you very much for joining me on The Boldness on Wednesday, the 18th of October. I've been talking with Mr. River Knight about the report and recommendations into the Royal Commission into Disability and the National Disability Insurance Scheme. Keep listening to 3CR 
8.55am. Make sure that you check out the Melbourne Fringe special I hosted. It's available on the 3CR Boltness podcast at www.3cr.org.au. There's some great shows at Melbourne Fringe Festival featuring performers with a disability such as The Freak, Derelict in Uncharted Space, Rock Steady Baby, and, of course, Deaf Enough. We're going to finish up with a song. It came to me after the result of the referendum on Saturday Felt very, very sad. Very appropriate that we finish with this song by Brett Lambert from our good friends at Wild at Heart Community Arts. This is Blue Emotion by Brett Lambert. The Boldness will be back on Wednesday, the 15th of November. Thank you very much and keep on listening to 3CR. Radical Radio, Voice of the People.